This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. Dave and I are in the midst of building and launching a startup, our book writing community called Road Trippers, which is why we are so excited to have Dave Parker with us today. He is author of Trajectory Startup, Ideation to Product Market Fit, a book designed to help startup founders with early ideas, finding co-founders and launching their products. Dave has founded five tech startups, three he sold and two that he closed. So he knows firsthand the challenges of startups and offers a path to get you from ideation to launch and revenue in just six months. We're excited to learn about Dave's work and especially about his writing, publishing and book promotion journey. So welcome Dave to our podcast. We're so happy to have you. Thanks, happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So we're gonna start out this podcast like we do all of our podcasts, which is with where we've made progress for the week. So Dave, you go first. Generally, I don't do anything about books, but I've been working on this idea after Death by Suburb, which came out in 2006. I did a book on fly fishing uh, about four or five years ago, but I haven't done one on spirituality again, and in part because I didn't have any good ideas, right? And so a lot of the ideas that I had were derivative off of Death by Suburb, and I didn't want want my sophomore effort to um, to be third rate, and it still may be. Well, my fly fishing book, I guess, was my sophomore effort. But anyway, so I've been working on this idea. And so Monday, I went to lunch with a friend. Actually, she's a colleague. We worked together like 25 years ago. And she got divorced. And then uh, so she's been single quite a few years. So we had this engaged or long conversation about what it means to be alone, really in the second half of your life, which is one of the themes of this book and kind of the spirituality of, of what it means to be alone and how to get used to it and how to come to terms with it. So it, man, her questions were so good. And so I came away with focus, like my thesis started to narrow, which is always good when you're working on a book and I just felt energy. And so I came I didn't come home and write or do anything grand, but I did feel positive and hopeful. So that's progress, I think. I love that. I love that you do what we encourage our writers to do, which is to to talk to people and to get some feedback early on in the book writing stage. So kudos for practicing what you preach, Dave. There you go. So how about you? (laughs) Well, mine is going to be lame. It's related to my ongoing devotion to trying to become a gardener. And I'm not a gardener, but I want to be a gardener because I love flowers and I love making bouquets. And so my parents were in last weekend and I planted a ton of perennials because I'm determined to plant things that will come back year after year. So all this money I'm putting into the garden this year won't be in vain, but I'm just prepared that not everything is gonna make it. And so it's kind of this grand experimentation of where the light is best and where I should plant this and what do I put in the soil? So I actually talked with somebody at the garden center about how to fertilize roses. And so I'm on this great learning curve in a new area of my life. So that is progress. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, there's nothing worse than in my mind, putting flowers are gonna die. And I I get the beauty for the three months that they're in, but man, I love the perennials. Yeah, Yeah, I do too. 
Dave, any areas of progress that you'd like to share with us? You know, I think there's some progress and there's a little bit of career regression. So like I'm learning book marketing, which I'm not sure is a great use of my time, but with the book being out, you're like, I can't, I can't not like make the effort to sell it. So um, one of the things I've learned about the publishing world is your publisher is your financier and your marketing agency. And they're maybe occasionally good at one or the other of those, but you have to kind of flip the coin to figure out which one. So this week was Amazon Prime Day week. So if we're, whenever we get this live as a, as a publication. So the book was on the special for Amazon Prime. So tons of social media sharing and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm learning marketing again at stuff that I did early, early in my career. A few days ago. <laughs> I love that. And you're having to use a word that's been overused, pivot and try to figure out these new ways of marketing in this digital era that we live in. So I'm excited to hear more about that as we move through this interview. And I know that our audience is going to want to hear all about that. But we want to start out this interview by hearing about that moment when you decided, I think I have a book in me. And then that moment where you decided to actively begin writing the book. What were those two moments for you? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I was running a program out here in Seattle and I've done a bunch in the startup community stuff. So I was running a program called Founder Institute and I would, I would end up doing office hours every week. And every week there would be topics that came up that ended up being thematic. And sure enough, I did that for three or four years. And then I, I joined a nonprofit called Startup Weekend and we were doing events globally and people would come out of that event. So for folks who don't know Startup Weekend, it's you come in on Friday night and you pitch your idea. There's usually about 125 people in the room. Hmm. And by Sunday night, so you recruit a team. This is my idea. I'm, my name is Dave. You should join my team. And by Sunday, we're gonna launch a product that'll do X in front of a group of investors and mentors. And my last full year there, we did 1265 events worldwide in 120 oh. countries with 74,000 oh. attendees. How many were you present at of those 1,260? Many, probably. Um, There was one week a year that all of us have traveled. So, you know, I think there was one year that I was in Budapest one weekend and Moldova the next weekend and London in the middle. And so there was, we we had a group of about 5,500 volunteers who ran the events for us. And what we really had figured out how to do was to um, make it a program that they could run to empower them to run startup programming in their community. So, what happened then was people would come out of that event and they'd be like, oh, Melissa and I met each other. We're like startup soulmates and we're going to leave our day jobs and go do this idea. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> before you do that, there are some things you can know and should know, like, like competitive analysis and you know market and things, things that are like super important to figure out if this is a good idea or not. So I had written so many blogs that I, at one point I looked at, I'm like, I got 150 blog posts. I'm like, well, that's, that's kind of a, that's a chapter. And that was just me ranting about something and that's a chapter. So I turned it into what I then called six month startup. So we, we ran it as a six month program for startup founders to basically a forcing function that pushed them into the four to six months of this is the work you need to go get done and do, oh my God, do it in six months and not six years, please. Like, (laughs) yeah. Your idea is going to fail. When do you want to know if it's going to fail? Do you want to know in six weeks, six months or six years? And my big push was like, you can knock this stuff out in six months and I'll give you the structure to do it. So we, we basically built our MVP or my MVP of the book was running this program, five cohorts. And, uh, and we definitely learned a lot in the process, right? There were things like somebody would come and ask the question like, um, 
So what do I do if I don't have an idea? So this is the very <laughs> first cohort, very first night. So we, we're doing the very first session. This woman comes up to me afterwards and I just got a note for her. She now works at Facebook, which is awesome, right? <laughs> so um, she comes up to me after she's like, this was super inspirational and you're entertaining as a speaker. And I learned so much. What do I do if I don't have an idea? And I'm like, part of in my head, I'm thinking, how did you even get in here? Right. <laughs> right. Like, this is a meetup about startups. How did you sneak in the door? And uh, so I'm like, I, I actually need to give that one some thoughtful response, right? I, I don't want to be flippant about that one. There's other stuff I'm flipping about, like raising money from VCs. I have tons of opinions about, but like what makes a good idea ended up, I ended up writing a chapter about it because no one really you know, it's kind of like, oh, it's a mystical force of nature with butterfly farts. I'm like, no, it's not. Like there's frameworks for this. So I had to go back and write uh, a new chapter about about that. So that was kind of the nexus of it. And then it just took me too long to do. So um, there's a there's a data side to the, the book, Melissa, where I analyzed 2,654 companies and their success rate um, based on what revenue model they chose. And we'll get into that in a bit. But I, I pulled the data, we started doing the research, and then I went and became CEO of another company until we sold it. And so I didn't plan on doing a five-year longitudinal study, right? Um, but because it took me so long to get it done, I did a five-year longitudinal study, which was super interesting because now we had successes and failures and time between fundraising rounds is a benchmark of like, hmm, that's interesting. The companies that did this in the 14 models matured faster than the companies that didn't. So there's the, the data set became more robust over time. And I probably would have looked at it as a snapshot and not garnered a whole bunch of other information about it. This now becomes super interesting. Yeah. Wow. I love that, that you used that time to benefit the ideas of your book. Was there ever a moment where you um, thought, I'm just not going to write this book or oh, yeah. always... every week, every day. Yeah. Like, so the problem was, is I, I had committed to people like David, I'm going to write a book. And, you know, people would come back and they're like, is your book, is it, I didn't see it, is it published? And I'm like, no, it's not done yet. Right. But I had, I had gone public with the fact that I'm writing a book and people kept asking me about it. So, you know, when COVID started, I was like 90% done. And I hired a, uh, a an editor myself, because I knew I had some duplicate content and stuff. And at one point, one of my pre-readers was like, you know, your first three chapters kind of don't, this is the pre-version, hopefully it's been corrected, but I'm going to tell people like, here's the mistake in the book. He's like, it's, it feels like you're starting the introduction three times. And I'm hmm. like, you're probably right. I probably started it at least three times, hmm. right? So the the way the, the book came together really follows the six month startup program content. And then the introduction was, you know, we got all done with it. And my editor's like, this is awesome. Congratulations. We got rid of this. We did that. He's like, now you need your opening sentence. Hmm. And like, Aren't we done already? Can't we just be done? I didn't know I needed an opening sentence as well. So, you know, I went with call me Ishmael, you know, <laughs> I, so. Um, so no, this is something as an author, I would say, don't worry about your opening sentence until you're done. And then you can fix the opening sentence later for sure. You know, we talk a lot about that with our writers and road trippers is don't, focus so much on the crafting and, you know, the word choice and all that your first time through writing, just get your ideas out and then go back and worry about the wordsmithing and the, the 
the great hooks that you really need to capture the attention of your audience. So I think that's that right there is gold for our, our audience that it right yeah, I mean, you're really about word count initially. Like, is there enough meat here on the bone to do, you know, there's a, there's in, in my world, there's a typical business book length, right? Which equates to, by the way, about eight hours in audiobook. <laughs> if you listen to me in 2x speed, you can read the whole book in four hours, which is awesome. 2x speed is a little fast. Maybe me at 1x speed is probably a little fast. But so, so yeah, I was very much focused on like the average business book is 200 to 250 pages to get to 250 pages. It's about 80,000 words. And then I got to a point where we were way above that. And I'm like, oh my God, that's book two. So there's actually, this is actually one book in a series of book called the Trajectory Series. So Trajectory yeah. Startup is the first one. Ideation to product market fit, which is what makes a good idea? How do I prove it? And how do I get to this milestone called product market fit or traction? And then book two is product market fit to exit. Because there's a bunch of stuff in startup land that you don't need to know until you have product market fit. Right. So do you guys remember Quibbly? Did you ever see Quibbly? Meg Whitman was the CEO. They raised a billion dollars. Jeffrey Kotzenberg was on the board. Like oh, this yeah, yeah, a, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, yeah. Amazing yeah. cast, right? Of people and money. And they burnt through about a billion dollars, right? And they never found product market fit. And the, my reminder there for people is you can't buy product market fit. You have to go prove it with customers. Hmm. And that was an example of a billion dollar miss. Wow. Right? wow. With an incredible team, right? So it, it has definitely changed my opinions on, you know, originally when I started writing the book, I was more aligned with some other folks who you would know in the startup world where they're like, team, 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 team idea. Yeah. And yeah. today I'm more like market first. It's the one A and one B. One yeah. A is market, one B is team. Because hmm. the reason is, is that an amazing team in a crap market will fail. Yeah. A mediocre team in an awesome market can still get pretty amazing results. Yeah. Right. But if if you pick the market timing wrong, which you're not in control of, and you only know in retrospect, by the way, only only VCs know, right? Because yeah. they're looking back at it in retrospect and they actually didn't do any right. work other than check. Right. So that's the difference between a VC. They can be like, our timing on that investment was very good. And you actually do anything other than like the work part of the timing, you didn't actually do anything. So. Right, right. So lots of people who write business books, they use it as like a giant business card. I'm curious what your view of writing a business book was and how you- Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I've got a couple of them here that you know people have sent me because now I'm on a list, I get books, I get random books in the mail. Yeah, yeah right. Um, and I was talking with another author who, is very much in the consulting business. They sell to a much more mature market than me. And he was like, so why did you write the book? And I'm like, I wrote it to help founders because they don't have any money and time is super valuable. And if they can get through this process in six months instead of two years, they'll save a bunch of time and they probably won't go bankrupt. Hmm. And he's hmm. like, that's not a very good reason to write a book. You won't make any money with that. And I'm like, they're startups. I won't make any money anyway. <laughs> you, can't, you can't sell to startups. Startups don't have any money to pay consulting fees. Right. Right. So, so the, the thesis on the book was really that market of people coming out of startup weekend who are super jazzed, right. I'm, if you think about the startup process, there's inspiration on one end of the continuum right. and there's tech stars on the other end of the continuum and founders confuse their need for money with their ability to raise money. Mm -hmm. And the book really addresses that. Okay. I know you have a need for money, but let me tell you how 
you need to be prepared as both a founder and a business so that you can go raise money, right? Is the idea fundable, right? All those other things. So, so yeah, I'd say from that thesis standpoint, it's a super bad uh, consulting practice because founders have no money. I do get amazing LinkedIn requests from people who's like, can I have a half hour office hours time to talk with you about my startup idea? And part of me is like the patron saint of lost startup causes, right? So there's, um, yeah, it's that one's hard. <laughs> Cause I'm yeah. like, when I do events worldwide and I still do events in Middle East and North Africa and accelerator programs. And, and I always tell founders, the thing that I love about what I do is regardless of where I go worldwide, I walk into a room of a hundred founders who look different, speak different, right? All that stuff. They all know that 70% of them are going to fail, maybe 90%. They all know it's not them, right? Because <laughs> so, we're all just a little bit delusional, right? right? For sure. Because the math says 70 to 90% of the startups are going to fail. And everybody looks around and says, sorry for you all. I'm going to succeed, yeah. <laughs> right? And so what I recognize is I've found my tribe, right? Everywhere I go in the world, Cairo, right? Bahrain, wherever, it's, this is my tribe. We're, we're all slightly delusional. <laughs> and every idea is crazy right before it works. What that says to me is that you had a deeper passion than being on the New York Times bestseller list. And that's, I think when we talk with writers, we always say there has to be something deep inside of you that, that drives you to write. Else why write? You know, you want to change lives with your words. You want to, you want to do something meaningful. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? That's something that resonates with you? Yeah, you know, this one's a funny one for me because I would tell you of all, like I have friends who are great at vision, mission, values, strategy, like all of those things. Like, you know, how to write a vision statement. I'm not, like I'm, that's just not, I'm not good at that stuff. Hmm. Um, I have people, of course, and they're an organizational development consultant. So they're like, no, you're actually really good at it. I'm like, no, I'm not. I don't have a plan for it. <laughs> like I can do it and it's painstaking for me to, to do it. Like to me, I know if you pull a string on my back, I know what I'm going to say. Right. So I, I think there's fundamentally, I don't think there's a reason for 70% of startups to fail. If you ask a set of systematic questions in advance. Hmm. So from the big picture perspective, I think I can change that number back to delusional. Right. <laughs> yeah. so you're like, okay, well, that's just a delusional statement. You're right. It's totally delusional statement. But for the one founder who doesn't do a second mortgage on his house and go through a bankruptcy, that was worthwhile. Yeah. yeah. Right? So it's a little bit of the starfish scenario. You're like, I can't save all of them, but I can save this one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I hope that that's it. I hope that book two will be more, I will be more deliberate on book two or book three. Yeah. Right. But book one is really the, the consolidating down the things I've learned from both successes and failures. And like everybody, you learn more from your failure than your success for sure. Yeah. We always talk about how you have one, an ideal reader in mind. And so for yours, mm -hmm. yours are the startup founders. But did you have a secondary audience in mind as you were writing? And who would that yeah. be? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. So I think, you know, the startup founder was my primary audience for sure. The secondary market is actually kind of three different, uh, I, I, what we call ideal customer profiles or ICPs, right? So co-founders. People who are like, how do I evaluate this idea? Should I join Dave on this crazy journey or not? Right. So co-founders mm -hmm. are definitely a target market. Harder to find, by the way. It's not like you can market to them very clearly. Right. Students, because they, when you're in an, a, an undergraduate program at university, the professors are like, find a problem that you know and go solve it. 
which is why we've had some amazing breakout hits in dating, food delivery, books, and alcohol, hmm. right? Which is, there's, you know, Facebook, Snapchat, like there's been some amazing, but they're solving a problem they know. However, the average entrepreneur is 42 in America, hmm. which means you've got exposure to a whole different set of life challenges and problems and typically more business to business versus business to consumer. So my, so that, that secondary market was both, you know, co-founders, service professionals, lawyers, accountants who want to figure out like, should I take on this client or not? Should I risk anything or not? Mm -hmm. um, corporate um, innovation folks, right? Can we ap apply this to how we do corporate innovation? Cause that's in our, that's where all the money is. And, right, and, right. And then indirectly in students, right? Is, could this be a pre-read for students about, okay, I think I, now I know how to think about my idea and test it out. And I'm going to learn a framework, even if I kill this idea fast, because I'm not a fan of fail fast. I think fail, fail fast is, um, uh, is somebody with white privilege who has a rich uncle who doesn't <laughs> care if they burn through the cash. Right. I was raised by a single mom on food stamps. So my mantra was failure is not an option. And okay. most people are like that. Yeah. Right. And so, which means most people won't take the risk because if failure is not an option, you can't take the risk. Right, right. That's really insightful. One of the challenges that we see with writers who like, for example, have a business, they want to write a book. The, the book drags on. It reminds me of your, you can do it in six weeks, six months, or six years would be in, in the book, in our, in our world, it wouldn't be six weeks. But how did you create a, a sense of urgency for, for you to actually complete the book? Because we find that people who have, in a sense, a deadline in their head, all of a sudden the machine starts to work and they, they get it done. Otherwise, it just tends to drag on. How did you create any sense of urgency around it? Maybe talk about your discipline. I think that would be helpful to, to the people listening to this episode. Given the fact that I was running it as a seminar, I was, I was perpetually getting feedback. So if you're doing something that, where that applies, obviously in the, some, some options that doesn't apply. But for me, it was a question of like, I had this real-time feedback loop, which is to your point, go, go ahead and talk to the ideal customer. I was talking to them. I was giving them office hours. I was giving feedback. So then when the deadline got there, I was like, I just need to finish this. So um, I'm a big fan of calendar blocking. So my calendar block was 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. every day. Wow, that's discipline. And some days I did good and some days I didn't. Some days I started on time, some days I didn't. Like I didn't beat myself up over, did I make, but my goal was to write every day, right? So it wasn't good writing every day, but some of it became good writing every day. So, and then I'd look back on it and I'm like, oh, that was kind of crap writing day. And you're like, yeah, yeah. But my discipline was about learning to write every day. Yeah. So even if it was an hour, even if it didn't make any progress, I would still get in front of my keyboard, sit down and write. Hmm. Um, then I'd get into, you know, I would, I would encourage you not to go back and edit, like just write first and then come back and organize and edit later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because what you're, what you're really trying to do is that, but the final sprint was, you know, five to 8 a.m. just calendar block the crap out of it and take a break and go to my Peloton bike, right? But I was like, I was just kind of tethered to my desk. Yeah. because I knew we were going to be, it was, you know, then, then I got it done and it ended up waiting another six months because the publisher's like, there's two cycles a year that we release books, spring and fall. <laughs> and I'm like, 
you mm -hmm. clearly have not been disrupted by technology yet. Right? <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> Tell us about working with a publisher. Like, how did you engage a publisher? Did they engage you? What was that whole process like? And did you have to pitch your idea to a publisher? Yeah, so I had some good advice from a guy in Chicago named Rob Elder. Rod had written a number of books. Um, he was an, a journalist and he interviewed me for a, um, a publication and he came back and he's like, dude, you, you've got something unique here. You need to, you need to turn it into a book. I'm like, I know, uh, yeah. <laughs> so Rob gave me a copy of his book proposal and I wrote up my version of that book proposal following that template. And then I knew that, you know, Wiley was the publisher that I knew in the book world. And some people I had, you know, some of the ones behind me that like Brad Feld wrote the, the forward to my book and Brad had been published by, by Wiley. So I was like, well, I'm gonna go to Wiley. And then I talked to another friend who was an author who was like, oh, you need to talk to my publisher who eventually is the one I went with, who ironically used to work at Wiley. So I was negotiating with his former employee while I was negotiating with him. Knowing what I know now, since they'll probably listen to this, I will say the jury's still out. So, so I, I live in the venture capital world. So in, in venture capital, if I have a portfolio of 25 companies, 2.5 of them are my top decile are going to return the fund. The first quartile will give me returns, right? So let me pick an easier number because the math will be simpler, right? 100 investments, 10 investments will do great. 25 investments will do well. 70, 65, 70 of them will be zombies or die, mm. right? So I'm, I'm just playing the math as a VC. I think the math in publishing is worse, right? I think publishers sign up 20, 40 authors two times a year and they hope for a genie in a bottle. And that becomes the one winner. And based on the fact that as I talk to publishers about, okay, what, what would you like me to do to promote the book, right? And the answer is, well, you know, just keep doing what you're doing, right? And I'm like, mm, that's not good. And I don't, I don't mean to throw my publisher on the bus. I, I put my publisher's a great guy. I think the struggle is, is that um, you'll, you'll hear publishers say, you need to have a platform. In fact, there's a, an author that wrote a book called The Platform, right? To figure out like, can you go build a list and do you have a good social media following? And the answer is, I have a pretty big social media following, 8,500 people on LinkedIn and 3,300 folks on Twitter and, you know, Facebook, et cetera but they don't know me as an author. Right. So even if I reach out to them, it doesn't mean that they're gonna listen, right? So I think the, the prep work there is how engaged is your platform? So I have 3000 people that read my blog every month, whether I write anything new or not. Hmm. Now, the irony of it is, I always ask people when I'm doing this one about, because it's a growth hack opportunity for marketing, is if you have somebody you're following that could be a great, fan for you and you want to reach out to them and they write a blog all you have to do is follow it and comment on it twice yeah right <laughs> right because of the three thousand people who read my blog every month i'll ask the question to you guys but i'll give you the answer how many people comment on my blog every month right and the answer is two yeah so if you had it if you if you commented on my blog more than once and you added value and said something smart you didn't try to tell me something i'm like Melissa, I'm just like a super fan of you. Like that's yeah. amazing, right? You know who you are. So I did that with a, a guy who's in the venture industry as well. He was a super great blogger, writes amazing content. His name is Tomas Tongas. He's from Redpoint Ventures. So I, I comment on one of his blog and then I sent him a note on a different blog and I'm like, hey, have you seen this resource about this thing? And he's like, that's awesome. Thank you. 
so about six months later, I was like, hey, I noticed you're speaking at this event. I'm attending. I wasn't a speaker. I'm attending this event in Vancouver, BC. We should meet for a beer. He's like, that would be awesome. <laughs> I fanboyed him. That's all I did. Or fangirl if it's appropriate for you, right? But I, I just, I, I fanboyed him and that was like awesome, right? And the same thing happens to me, right? But you have to have the engagement of your platform is the issue. And if you have to go build it at the same time, that's okay. You can build a platform, but don't think that your publishers, your publisher knows how to get the book on Amazon. You can figure that out yourself. They don't know how to get the book printed. That's a little bit of a challenge. You need an editor. You need a proof editor. You need somebody to do the book layout. All this stuff you can do on Fiverr, right? So F-I-V-E-R-R, right? Yeah. And by the way, if, you, if there's any tasky stuff that's keeping you from getting your work done, go hire somebody on Fiverr to do it for $25. Right. I had, to, uh, just to give you an example, I have a task today. We're, we're testing some the data we pulled from the book as it relates to public companies. Won't bore you the details. And the project came up with like, we need to do, look at the S&P 500 and look at the revenue model of each company on the S&P 500. Pretty big list. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I can get that done on Fiverr. I posted the job to three or four folks. And I got a price back for 75 bucks. It'll be done in less than a week. Amazing. Like, why would I want to do it when I can pay somebody 75 bucks to do it? That's crazy. Yeah. I love what you're saying. Um, the same as what you say about creating kind of a loyal following on your platforms. And I've been on Instagram now for about seven years. And the way that I built my following was exactly that. I just wanted fangirled a bunch of on left meaningful comments give them some positive feedback or just engage them. And that really, it really does create engagement and a kind of a, um, a re reciprocity. And so I think that's really valuable. The other thing that you said was that you can only expect so much from your publisher. And I think that that's so insightful. Um, we talk a lot about that, that you care probably more about the success of your book than your publisher does. Would you say that that's been true in your scenario? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, the economics are, the economics and publishing are wacky. Right. So just just know that that's I won't give you my specific numbers for the benefit of the publisher. But, you know, I was offered a small percentage with a growing percentage. But then the following question was, well, how big is your platform and how much are you going to sell versus ones that were closer, closer splits that made tons of sense. So I wanted to make sure that um, if I was going to do the work anyway, that I had a chance to make more money. Right. Now, there's also some wacky lack of transparency in the publishing world that most author, first time authors definitely I didn't know. Right. So one example is uh, we did Amazon Prime Day yesterday. How did we do? I'll know in six months when I get a royalty check. Yeah. What? That's crazy. Yeah. Well, how did we do in the audiobook sales? Well, my publisher doesn't know because they sold the rights to my audiobook to a different publisher. So I have to go reach out to that publisher to find it because there's no transparency or information rights sharing between the two of them. And the audiobook publisher never responds to me. Right. Because they actually don't want to, they don't actually want to talk to the author. <laughs> they just want to get the editing done and right, get it up on Audible and hope for the genie in the bottle again. So the other thing that's interesting about the lack of transparency is if you buy books directly from your publisher, because that's your best discount rate, those books don't count as sales in the, yeah. all of the rankings. Right, right. So my best economic, so if I'm doing a bulk event, like I spoke at an event a couple of weeks ago, an in-person event without masks, it was crazy. I know, right? <laughs> it was a hybrid yes. event, right? <laughs> it was normally 350 people, so there's 125 people there. 
So we, I did a bulk sale of 125 bucks. They drop shipped them to that event. So I could sign in and all that kind of stuff and meet people. So the best way to, the best economic price would be to buy them from my publisher and have my publisher drop ship them. But that doesn't count. Right. So I have a relationship with one of the, one of the many distributors who sell the book and they will drop ship them for me at a discount that's 40% off instead of 50% off or whatever your math is, right? But to get them to count, that's there. And then their pricing, for example, to do drop shipping to uh, individuals is different as well because you know we're in Seattle, so we're super close to Vancouver, Canada. I did an event for a Canadian group and we gave away 10 books, right? I'm like, I have, I have book, some books under my desk, right? I can just ship them. The cost of shipping internationally because Canada is international is so like no good deed goes unpunished. Right. right? <laughs> so that whole process was just painful because I didn't know. So your international shipping is going to be expensive because it's, it's, it's a book. There's a stigma against self-publishing. You, know, you feel sometimes less credible if you don't get a traditional publisher to publish you. There's a certain element, bragging power that you have when you have a traditional publisher. But we also talk about the value of self-publishing, which is you do have more control over pricing, over knowing how your book is selling, all of those things that you're talking about. Yeah, I think the, the, the catch-22 there is like in venture capital, people think of raising venture as a sign of success. It's not. Free cash flow is a sign of success. Hmm. Customers. In business, right? <laughs> yeah. So customer validation, sign of success. People paying you for your product, sign of success. So th the point I make in the book about the 14 revenue models is, so I, I break down the, so business model is this amorphous black box thingy, right? So, but it's not, right? There's, there's creating value, which is the, the top van of the circle. It's my product or my service. Right. It's the team I'm gonna that's gonna deliver that product or service. And it's the market that I serve. Those are the components of it. That's it. There's a cost associated with building a product. Done. Okay. And now have cost number one. Cost number two is the cost associated with selling the product. So that's called delivering value. So I have creating value, delivering value. In delivering value, it's the revenue model, it's the marketing effort, it's the sales effort, and it's the mm -hmm. price. And those are the only four components in that circle. Now, what's left is capturing value, which is your top line sales and net profit. You don't get to control anything in that circle, right? You get to control the cost of building the product. You get to control the cost of selling the product. The same thing is true for you as an author. There's a cost of writing the book, right? Time, effort, energy, research, right? Now I have to figure out my cost of selling it. Am I going to do Audible or not? Well, that's all credits versus purchases and Amazon kind of in control of that and Okay, so yeah, and as we were talking, as we kicked this off, like I realized how bad I am at reading the stuff that I've actually written, right? Even <laughs> though I've delivered it in dozens and dozens of seminars, right? Because you're stuck in the studio in a closet. They call it a studio, but it's really just a coat closet with a window <laughs> with a big microphone in front of you so that you can read the book that you wrote. And it's the first day is super painful, right? Yeah. From an author's perspective, you just have to think about if I have an audience that I can sell to, I know how to reach that audience. The frustration with me being a, a super active marketer and startup guy is I want to run a Twitter ad campaign and track my sell-through data. Yeah. I can't. Right. 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 Because Amazon doesn't give you any data. Yeah. So I can buy ads and hope that Amazon converts. In case you guys don't know, hope is definitely not a strategy. 
It's always good for Amazon. It's always good for Google, right? It's always good for Twitter. It's occasionally good for you. Yeah. Well, the transparency thing on sales you were talking about, I with I'm the same way. I get my royalty statements every six months with with Harper Collins with my book Death by Suburb. But with the fly fishing book of lists, I know when somebody's bought that immediately because I go to KDP and I see the sale. And I know exactly what I'm getting and what the check is going to be written to me every month from uh, Amazon. And there's something so delightfully uh, satisfying about that. You're a little bit more in control of your destiny. And I would say now, now, that, now that I'm a published author, I would say it's very overrated. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I, I like my publisher. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still hopeful that there's going to be a reason to have a long-term relationship with them, I think. Because there is stuff that they do that otherwise you're going to have to take time to go learn to go do yeah, to be right. yourself published. But, you know, I think this, the, the grass is always greener and it's because there's more fertilizer on it. So just know that like you, you just, you're taking, you're moving your problem from one area to another area. If you have a publisher, if you're, if you're a great writer and you never want to talk to business or like, then you should, you should have a publisher. But if you actively want to sell the book or build a, an audience or build a market, so what I'm what I'm finding now that's distressing is I'm building this audience of people who've read my book and so LinkedIn and Twitter and email lists and I'm, I'm bringing all these lists together so I have a big list. Once I have that list done, then it's like oh crap! Now I have to have more product to push through the list because if I'm not actively mo- moving product through that list, they'll forget about me. Yeah. Right. So is that book two? Do I co-author a book? Do I take a derivative work of the first book? And all that's like, ugh, I don't even know that that was, a, I don't even know that writing a book in the first place was a good idea, let alone writing a second <laughs> book. <laughs> right? Right, right. As far as a business decision, if you, for me, I had, I had a book I needed to write right. and that may be where you are as an author. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. But just know that just because you have a publisher, doesn't mean you're going to be successful with it. I love your incredible honesty here because I do think that people don't really consider what you're talking about. So I appreciate you sharing so honestly with us about your your publishing experience. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing on your own side with promoting the book? I know you talked about Amazon Prime Day, but what else have you been personally doing to promote your book? A couple of the good observations. If you're self-published, the good observation is you can do an Amazon Prime Day at 99 cents. Okay. For wow. us, doing Amazon ebook Prime Day was $5.99 instead of $17.99 because ultimately I'm not in control of the price the publisher is. So, and then the other publishers control the price for the audiobook. So I don't have a lot of control about pricing. So it's not one of the levers I can pull. For me, it's better for me to do one to many sales and bulk sales instead of like one to one sales is super painful. Yeah. Right. So um, somebody's like, oh, could you send me a free copy of your book? I'm like, no, you should just buy the book. Right. And as an author, you're like, I, you know, I have a, I have a stack over here of books and the answer is not giving them away. My answer is you can find everything that is in the book on my blog post. You just have to stitch it together. Right. right. But it's all there and it's all free, but you know, I I do want to get paid for what I do. Right. I'm a big, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I am a capitalist and ultimately (laughs) I've got a kid going to music school in Boston and it's not cheap. So I gotta, I gotta, you know, even even the patron saint of lost causes for startups, I still have to make money. So I point people to the book. I try to do bulk sales. I'm doing a lot of one-to-many marketing. So the podcast like this is a great idea. So one of the things I have done, I would highly encourage you to think about if you're an author is I have a virtual assistant out of the Philippines. 
she and she, we send from the Dave email, right? And I'll be like, here's a list of every podcast I want you to reach out to. Send them a, my profile as if it's from me. In some cases, we're testing, we're A-B testing a lot. Yeah. So it's coming from exec admin at DK Parker versus David DK Parker, right? And hey, we, you know, Dave would like to get on your schedule and here's a link to a podcast he recently did. Yeah. Right. And some of the other hacks there is my, my blog has all the podcasts. One of the things we do systematically, though Zoom does it for you now, super cheap, is you can actually take that transcription and yeah. post it underneath the, the video. So your headline should be, if you think about your, what your customer is looking for, this is just a general hack for marketing and advertising is maybe if my customer is looking for like, how do I make money as a startup? mine's going to show up really high, right? So the headline for that blog post is how to make money as a startup and not be a statistic. Interview with Dave Parker and Alliance of Angels, video embed frame. The entire transcription is below it because Google doesn't index YouTube videos. Right, right. So in order for it to SEO well, I have to have the transcription underneath it. Do I expect anybody to read a transcription? No, it reads like a transcription but Google will index it and that's all that matters, right? right? So I'm always building SEO content. That's super tactical. Um, I have regularly scheduled things that, and most of these are things that I created because I went, to, I was talking about, what should we do? And they're like, well, you could do what you could do. And honestly, the marketing person who works for my publisher just has too many authors that she's working with at the same mm -hmm. time. Right, right. Right. So know that that's the downside of having a publisher. The plus side is, so we have a regular routine. I post on, well, I don't post. My virtual assistant posts on Tuesdays and Thursdays. By the way, she's in the Philippines. I pay her five bucks an hour. She loves it. It's a dollar more an hour than she asked for, <laughs> right? So she, yeah. she schedules everything for, there's one social post on Tuesdays. There's another social post on Wednesdays. Every podcast goes out on Wednesdays. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm on social regularly with regular stuff. Yeah. I took all of the blurbs that people wrote for me for the book, inside cover and outside cover, and I, I turned them into social components, so tweets, whichever, yeah. with like Steve Case wrote me a blurb. So I took Steve's quote, tagged Steve Case, credit where credit is due, Steve Case's quote about Dave Parker's book, Trajectory Startup, at Steve Case, yeah. right? So all of those are just like, we're, I'm learning back, and like I said, I'm kind of learning marketing stuff that I've used to do way back when I was a marketer, right, learning right. it again. Is it a great use of time? No, but if you want to sell your book, you have to be, you have to take control over the marketing process for sure. Yeah, that is a great word. That's a great word. I think our final question has to do with, you already talked about possibly book two and book three, but do you see any other products surrounding this book or um, like a video curriculum, anything that this one's a great, it comes up frequently when I do. So um, I can't tell you how many podcasts I've done that the podcaster gets with me afterwards and asks me this question because they built an audience and now they're like, how do I monetize this audience? Yeah. Which is my quirkiness, right? There's 14 revenue models. That's it. So the, the point is hopefully your business idea is unique. How you make money is never unique. There's 14 models, just pick one. So now the question is, is, are you going to be in the services business? Or are you going to be in the product business? Because in the services business, it's me and I don't scale. Right. Right. And you can productize a service too. That's one of the revenue models. 
I'll give you a little quick insight and jump ahead to the book. So when you go to sell a company, so I do a lot of sell-side merger and acquisition work these days and help founders sell their company. That's how I make my living because yeah. doing yeah. a book is an interesting hobby, but not a great <laughs> A time-consuming hobby. Yes, every other hobby. If we do, a, if the three of us did a consulting business that did a million dollars a year, if we went to go sell that business, it would sell for roughly a million dollars. If we did a subscription software company that did a million dollars a year in revenue, that company would sell between eight and $12 million. The amount of time it takes to build that company is kind of the same. I'm not saying it's easy. Not every business can be a subscription business. That's not my point. My point is, is that you need to begin with the end game. So begin with the end in mind. You have to go back to the seven habits book. For me, it's the question of, I'm going to continue to give away content that I can give away for founders because I'm a, I'm a fan and I'm a community builder at heart, yeah. right? Bad business decision. Ultimately, I think it pays off in different ways. Right. The book has opened up other consulting opportunities with bigger companies around stuff like data I was just talking about. What's the revenue multiple? How do we shift our revenue? Really interesting consulting work um, that pays way better than working with startups because again, startups just don't have any money. So your options, if, you're, if you've built a community and you're an influencer and you write your first book, now your question is, is, do I sell coaching? The only person I see making money in coaching is the people who are coaching coaches to learn how to coach. There may be some amazing coaches out there, but that's my outsider's view of it. I can make products, right? Make videos, make courses. I'm better in person than I am. And the, the amount of marketing required to generate online events during the pandemic, I'm like, I just don't wanna do them, I'm exhausted. I get energy from doing events with people that, that we've taken the program and taken it from six months to five months, right? Because I, I need those two months off during the year, but it's a once a month program and the tickets are like $35, right? Because again, startups don't have any money. I can't charge them $600 to do it. So, right. so yeah, I think for me, it's a matter of like, I see more books there as an option. The consulting is, is interesting, but not directly involved. Like if you have a direct thesis, like I have a book back on my shelf from a, a guy who sent me, the book is in a box and it's, the box has branding on it and the letter that it comes in is awesome. And it's like, it's a big business card, yeah. which is brilliant, yeah. yeah, right? As long as you're selling to an audience that you know can actually pay for your services. That's right. kind of key. Right, that's a great note to end on. Dave, did you have any more questions? No, this has been so rich, uh, Dave. I can't believe it. It's been, uh, I think you're, you've really given authors both practical ideas. I think some of your tactical stuff is great, but also kind of a dose of reality. And uh, I think your whole book, you know, talking about the, you know, you can only have one of, it's one of 14 business models. It's not one that hasn't been thought of before, or it's not three in, of the 14, right? So I just think it's really helpful. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You're welcome. Great. So we're going to turn to our words of the episode before we close out this episode. And Dave, you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Uh, let me go first because I'm trying to remember how to pronounce the name of the word. And I, I think I have it correct in my head and I may not have it correct in my head after, after you go. So, so the word is eponymous eponymous so the word the word actually refers to it's it's an adjective that refers to the person place or thing that something else is named after so for example here in the midwest if you drive through any town you have the bob evans restaurants right so bob mm -hmm. evans is the 
eponymous owner of the Bob Evans restaurant. Does that make sense? It's not Did a- we use that word? I yeah. don't know. I, I saw it in, a, I think it was a New Yorker article. And I thought, oh, I don't, I only obliquely know what that means. And I realized after I, I looked it up, I did not know what it meant at all. So I'm only, I don't like to, to use word in words of the episode. I like to use words that I might use, but this is not one I would really use. So eponymous is the name of the word. So how about you? You're better at that. Well, I, I picked one just because I thought it was a funny sounding word. And I thought I understood what it meant until I read it and read the, the um, definition and it's interlard, E-N-T-E-R-L-A-R-D. And I think any word with the word lard in it is kind of funny. And it means to intersperse or embellish speech or writing with a different material. So I guess if you had like a technical piece of writing and suddenly you, in, you interlarded it with some, some metaphors, some flowery metaphors, that would be how you'd be, you would use the word. Or she likes to interlard her conversation with esoteric vocabulary words. So if you're having a casual conversation, then you throw in the word interlard or eponymous. How do you spell it? Interlard. So it... I-N-T-E-R-L-A-R-D. Okay. L-A-R-D. Yeah. Huh. So there you have it. Two words of the episode. Can I yeah. throw in one? Yeah, please do. For authors, I'm going to give you a really, it's a hard one right? It's, it's, but it's a hard one you need to learn to use. Please buy the book. <laughs> right? Because at some point, you just need to get used to the fact of, hey, please buy the book. Yeah, right? absolutely. And even if you're humble, even if you're sweet and nice, it'll be hard for you, but you need to learn this word. Please buy the book. No, I'm not going to send you a book for free. There you go. There's another word that you've shared. Yeah, with us. Exactly. That's the comma behind it. So, Absolutely. well, and I will say by trajectory startup, I think, especially if you're an author, you should, this book actually would be kind of a wake up call to what you're actually getting yourself into once you publish that book. So uh, trajectory startup by Dave Parker. I hope you pick it up. I, uh, I just ordered a copy. And so your sales in six months should see a spike and whatever your, maybe it's. I'll bring my Sharpie when I get to come out to the Midwest. All right, Dave, how about you tell our audience about road trippers before we sign off? Road trippers or take our quiz? Oh, that's right. Let's talk about taking our quiz. Okay, let's talk about taking our quiz. <laughs> quiz that's more interesting yeah so hey if you we have a quiz that we've had quite a few people take on our site and it really helps identify where you are in in the journey to write a book and so we have labeled journey 66 after route 66 which starts in downtown chicago and ends on a pier in santa monica california and there's so many places where people tend to to land and they get stuck or maybe they even haven't started yet. So the quiz helps identify which mile, mile marker you're at and gives you some practical steps once you identify that where to go next. So for example, I just saw someone who took the quiz who they uh, consider themselves a good writer. They've actually started, they have already started and written a few chapters, but they're stuck on structure how to structure the rest of the book, which is a common one, actually, if you're in the middle of, of uh, or want to start writing a book, how do you structure this monster? And, and it becomes unwieldy at times. So anyway, jump on the website, you'll see the navigation, take our quiz and take the quiz and, I, and you'll find some practical help uh, to help you take that next step. All right, well, I think that that's a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.